0: Welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast for higher ed marketers. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler, and I'm the Director of Communications for UCLA's School of Nursing. Today we're talking to Bridget Burns, the Executive Director for the University Innovation Alliance, about their work to increase the number and diversity of college graduates in the United States. Let's get started. Higher Voltage is brought to you by Squiz. University websites are filled with great information. But oftentimes, a simple internal site search does not give users the information they're looking for. Funnelback, the site search product by Squiz, changes the way people engage with content by revolutionizing search. It delivers relevant and comprehensive search results for users, which is key for business objectives. Visit www.sqiz.net to see how Funnelback by Squiz can create a smarter site search option for your institution's website today. I am so excited to talk to you, Bridget Burns, Executive Director of the University Innovation Alliance. I have to say that I first uh, was introduced to you um, in the unlikely film. And after that, I completely kind of stalked you about coming to my former employerology and coming to conferences and speaking and meeting. And finally, we are here. I'm I'm super appreciative of your time. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. Before we dig in, if you could just introduce yourself, the UIA and what you do there, that would be really, really great. Well, I'm
1: honored to uh, be your guest. Uh, and so who I am uh, is Bridget Burns, Executive Director of the University Innovation Alliance, which is a consortium of large public research universities who are innovating together, scaling up what works and broadly diffusing everything we learn as we transform our institutions to be more student-centered to eliminate our achievement gaps. So I, uh, when I describe my work, To a person on the street, I say that I run essentially like a Weight Watchers group for universities to be good at something they've never been good at. Um, And that is probably a more accurate description.
0: Uh, I think that's a great analogy. Um, It makes perfect sense. Can you talk a little bit about the um, origin story of the UIA? um, what needs you were seeing at the time and what the plan was to meet those needs over the course of the last however long you were, you've been. Well, how long have you been in exi- existence? Uh,
1: we started, we went public in 2014, but we worked in private for a year in, prior to that. So 2013,
0: so like eight. eight years, two Olympics, yeah. great. So can you talk about the origin story of the organization?
1: Yeah, so a group of university presidents and chancellors were having a conversation about what they had in common and the challenges they shared and whether or not they might be able to work together to accomplish a big goal. So at the time, American higher education was simply not producing enough high-quality college degrees. So I'm not I'm, t- I'm not talking for-profit degree. I'm talking about rigorous, um, where graduates are leaving and they feel like they are well-equipped for the workforce. They are well-equipped and they feel like they got a great value. And we were simply, for the economic competitiveness of our country, we were not simply doing the job. We were millions short of where we needed to be. So we needed to increase the productivity of higher education institutions. But we also were doing a terrible job with low-income first-generation and students of color. And these institutions shared a commitment to work on those issues and essentially challenge the question of whether you could be big and good and in the process of working together could we actually try and achieve a big goal and Could we share ideas? Could we scale them up? Could we try and figure out this method of scale stuff? So there's there's a lot of challenges that they were wrestling with I would say that the big ones that stood out for me are that ideas were not spreading in higher education so the diffusion of innovation the diffusion of solutions was super slow and all of higher education actually needed to do needs still to do a much better job becoming student-centered and being student-centered is hard transforming your institution is hard and there's and if you go it alone you know best of luck but it's actually really difficult and so I would say those are the two challenges that we really have scaffolded our work around
0: Uh, I have so many questions just based on that one response but we'll get to most of those in a minute I just want to see, um, could you please just describe or define what student-centered means for UIA, and just for people who might not be familiar with what that means in the, in the higher ed context?
1: Well, I mean, I <laughs> most of us have a lived experience with higher education that for if you're if you grew up low income or first generation or a student of color, you often your lived experience with higher education is running into things that don't work for you. Systems that were designed for the administrator or the faculty or the institution, but not actually designed with the needs of the student in mind. We know that empathy is the first step of design. And the truth is that American higher education was never designed around students. And by that, what I mean is when it comes to anything, whether it's our enrollment process, our admissions process, you know, helping you get a job, internships, uh, whether or not you're actually learning, every how we assess things, it's all designed around the institution's needs. It's not actually putting the needs of the student first. And if we put the student first, we would design things very differently. So uh, the example I often use is around graduation, that everyone um, has graduation as, as a thing, I hope, <laughs> at, their, at their campus. And uh, no matter where I go, the process is pretty similar, which is uh, the student you know, doesn't know when they're ready to graduate mm-hmm. um, and the institution doesn't know either. Right. So it's often like, uh, you know, who's going to figure it out first? The but the campus in particular is not aware. And when a student is ready to graduate, they then have to let the institution know they have to fill out a bunch of forms and paperwork and then they fill out a fee like they pay a fee to be able to graduate that is the opposite of student-centered design like if you think about checking out at amazon why it's so seamless think about anything that you experience that is user design focused um you you know it's almost effortless right uh most of the steps that i will describe for a lot of the process that we expect students to to go through uh, the word effortless simply does not come up. And when we're talking about students who are working multiple jobs, when we're talking about students who don't have you know, advisors and coaches and lawyers and all these things in their cabinet to make sure that they're successful or if they're dealing with institutional racism or any of the other things that we know our students are experiencing daily, having on top of it that the institution is actually difficult to navigate, that becomes a real problem. It becomes a barrier to graduation, a barrier to success and a barrier in life.
0: Uh, Thank you for mentioning all of those points. I think that it's so often on the, the everyday of a campus, I think it becomes easy to miss all of those points that you've just raised because you're so busy doing the everyday tasks of running a campus, right? No matter where you sit in, in an uh, organization, an educational organization in higher ed, there are so many things that try to take our attention away from our main goal and our, our target audiences, which are the students, of course, that it feels like it just kind of gets forgotten. So my experience in higher ed has been that it's always very hard to start a new conversation about a, a, a much needed thing. And becoming student-centered is Really, um, a hard thing to do, like on, a, like to turn on a dime for a university, especially a large public. So, how do, how did you start to break down some of the bureaucracy that made universities not student centered, so that they could end up being student centers, especially the the members of uh, University Innovation Alliance?
1: So, I don't really do any of this right like my job is it's like Seth Godin's to notice things so what I do is I observe institutions who have figured things out and they are not all the way there but they've figured out enough that it's a bit further ahead of another institution and we draw anecdotes uh we see examples stories etc to help institutions recognize that they are not alone struggling with this issue and that they also don't have to figure it out on their own so um I would just start with not me, <laughs> but right. what I have picked up from institutions is, um, you know, I don't think of it as needing to break down administration um, to, to make it student-centered. What it is, is really awareness generating. Like I experience that people who work in higher education genuinely care about students and they are frustrated and disappointed when they see the ways that bureaucracy does not serve students. It's just that changing your role, changing your organization, is like a whole other job on top of a job. And everyone else has their inbox, you know, filling up every day, back-to-back in meetings. So like, when is the time gonna happen for, and when it, when are we gonna have the authority and the resources and the space to actually work on the design of our institution so that it really makes sense? It, that's really more the question, is like, mm-hmm. it's awareness, it's helping, in, helping folks it's like leading them to water on this because, um, you know, many of them already know, right? They they see the problems everywhere, but how we do it, um, I would say the best example that has served this work is the example that originally was born out of Georgia State and was replicated at Michigan State, um, and that's we typically would start with process mapping, and that is, you know, at Georgia State, that's really what began their journey is they started by first understanding the process on the campus. How are things actually not just the fantasy of what they are? Most people assume that your systems, your process, your protocols, they're great they work for everybody. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, When the truth is, it's not fine. And in fact, we have to like really put it up on the wall and see it objectively. And so at Michigan State, they did that, um, borrowing that concept from Georgia State, which we didn't come up with this, Georgia State didn't come up with this, but it's about applying process mapping as a tool and, uh, and doing it with a wide collection of student success or student affairs professionals. So long lead up, Michigan State gets all, everyone who works on student success in one room and they decide that they're going to map out from the day a student gets admitted to the day they show up on campus. It's a three month window of time and they process mapping is literally putting a post-it note up on the wall for every step, every message, every email everything and when they all stood back at the end of that day after process mapping just that three months they saw that they were sending 450 emails to every Michigan State student and that there were 50 types of holds that a student could have on their account that they didn't know that the university didn't know about so that's an example of a time when a group of people all well-intending get together and because the right people are in the room they're all You don't need to get anyone bought in on that. Everyone's becoming aware together of just where the problem is, how it's showing up, how it's impacting students. And they also become very clear to see all the places where we're just, we have blinders on. And um, so that's one example of that anecdote, that story um, really has gone viral. Other institutions, we apply process mapping, whether it's about your whole policy, um, major change, anything. uh, First, start by getting a sense of what the student's actually experiencing and try and do it with as inclusive a group as possible so that, you know, you get everyone on the same page um, and then you start chipping away. That's actually how you do this work. It's not uh, as much as people want it to be like a robot or a chatbot or a, um, AI, so, something fancy, um, many of those things are very useful and are critical, but you got to start by knowing actually how problematic your
0: system is. Right, right, right. And I love that idea that looking at everything on a wall altogether because of all the silos that tend to exist in higher ed and, you know, housing sending this and financial aid is sending this and whatever else, it's hard to see the entire picture. So I'm kind of curious about how uh, the membership and the and the folks that you work with, um, A um, – uh, started to have this conversation what it might what it, what it looked like at the very beginning and how their behaviors or practices have changed since um, you know doing these exercises, especially in terms of like marketing and communications because obviously that's uh, you know part of how uh, they distribute the message and if the process that the message is distributed by is kind of messed up then sometimes the message can get kind of mixed up as well. so how does how does that kind of conversation start for your campuses? Um, especially around process mapping um, to get everyone on the same page
1: so when you ask about how we got, like started originally in terms of our thinking about this work um, we actually had a pretty uh, you know I think at the time it's, it's adorable now um, but I see the the flaws of it we came in thinking that each institution would either be a mentor or a mentee and that there were certain promising practices that had, been, that had been proven unequivocally with data we knew worked. And then all we would do is take that idea and plug it in at another campus. We would transplant it. And what I was supposed to do was just pay attention to the transplant process and see over time, can we do it faster? Can we do it easier? Can it cost less money? Can we share insights from implementation that make it easier? And to some degree, that last part has happened. But what we soon learned is that nobody wants to be a mentee. Nobody wants to, and yet everyone is. In fact, every institution has got something that's working that they could share with another institution, Uh, but every institution has a lot more areas where they need to learn from other campuses. And so that's where our role of like facilitating and matchmaking, um, it, it starts with me listening for what are the primary challenges on X campus, Y campus, getting a sense of all of them And then saying, okay, well, great. Ohio State actually has a project, has a program in that area that really does help uh, African American males in their second year. Awesome. That's going to solve that. Let's let's set up a space where you can, this other campus, learn from what challenges they overcame, what was their process, how they come up with that, uh, what advice would they give. um, Just really kick the tires. So, part of this was understanding, just that figuring out who's got what problems, what solutions, but it was also about unpacking and creating a new way for institutions to learn from each other because it turns out that all we do is like tweet at each other and um, make announcements and broadcast and, you know, brag. And that's really off-putting and does not engender trust and what really was necessary was us creating a space that vulnerability and failure and sharing from failure were going to be okay. And in fact, like the vulnerability and trust piece were huge. We had to make it so that these institutions had reasons to drop their guard and not just be bragging, but actually talk about like, listen, I know that you like that program. And yeah, the data is good. But what you gotta know is it's actually cost us way more money than people realize. And in fact, it was a huge headache. And we actually figured out along the way that we probably could have done something that would have done it you know, a little bit better. Um, But we did it, we did that because one dean was really committed to that idea and it was kind of their legacy and so we just let it happen, right? So that kind of stuff you need to know because otherwise we fall in love with these headlines and these stories and this like, you know, tweet or this meme about an institution being awesome at X or Y. And we really miss the texture and we miss that like actually most interventions um, you can break them down. We, we need basically separate some of the storytelling around them and get to the nuts and bolts of like how many students are you serving? Talk to me like actually what you do <laughs> and what I can borrow, what I can, what I can scale.
0: I think that's great. Um, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit um, to touch on just obviously how could I, we not the pandemic, both pandemics, right the, the racial tension pandemic, the uh, global uh, pandemic, etc. around COVID. Has the mission of UIA broadened, or have you seen um, the mission kind of getting some momentum because of the things that we that surfaced or that America may have learned, quote unquote over the last 16 months?
1: I am fortunate that my presidents and chancellors understood and actually decided reached out and, and suggested that we move in a direction that included talking about and addressing systemic racism. In 2019, um, our campus, the presidents and chancellors actually decided to. So, we originally started, we had four goals um, more graduates, more graduates across the socioeconomic spectrum, innovating together, holding each other accountable with our data transparently, and then lastly, was holding down our costs. So, those are the four. And they added eliminating disparity and that includes race, income, all of it. And anywhere there's an equity gap on your campus, our work is now focused on eliminating disparity. And so that was November of 2019. I would say in the past year, uh, especially with the reckoning with uh, systemic racism and racial injustice, uh, it's fortunate timing that our campuses has already begun this work in terms of identifying um, what did we mean in terms of Eliminating disparity. So we had already identified and crafted a data sharing agreement of how we were gonna hold each other accountable on that How are we gonna set goals around these topics because we always begin by making sure that the work is is real and not just like feel-good announcement work, which there's a lot of in higher ed where we just like Yay, we're gonna tell everyone we're gonna do something and then we we, you know nothing ever happens Um, so we started there and by February and actually, it was February it was our last meeting um, before everything happened. Uh, that was going to be our core focus for the next year. And then starting in June, which coincides with the murder of George Floyd, we've reached the point of recognizing that our work really has to move to identity-conscious redesign. So mm-hmm. we have to figure out how to identity by identity. We've already been working on student-centered design and like you know making things more student-centered. but you know, when we're whether we're talking about student parents, whether we're talking about LGBTQ, whether we're talking uh, students, whether we're talking about. Um you know, transfer students, whether we're talking about uh, black students, you know, in general, each identity, you have to do this work of of identity conscious redesign work. And we realized there wasn't really a process for that, a collaborative process. And so what we decided to do is move forward that our first um, area of focus has been the Black Student Success Initiative, which we started last June and have just wrapped our third convening where our campuses are going through a process of, integrating their quantitative and qualitative data historically to understand what have we already been told about what's wrong with our campus in terms of the experiences of black students and what are the best practices, um, what data should we actually be much more vigilant about, and then building out an, an intentional plan to eliminate that disparity. So we started with black student success and as a while we're doing it, we're figuring out how we do identity conscious redesign work because Hmm. uh, next students and every other student population, we need to move on from here. But, um, so we've learned a great deal about that, but I would say this is a place where it's much more innovation, like figuring it out. And, um, I know there are a lot of fantastic organizations who are leading on this work and we're just trying to sit at the feet, um, and benefit from their wisdom. We also separately, um, had been on a path to expand the Alliance for years. We started Mm. two and a half years ago, identifying campuses, winnowing, vetting. can talk to you about all of that, but, um, we separately, um, had added University of Maryland, Baltimore County and North Carolina A&T last, uh, November. Um, mm-hmm. and kept it secret this whole time. <laughs> and uh, so this is a position, it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity because we're talking about predominantly white institutions, somewhat sitting at the feet of institutions who have historically been exemplars on serving um, black students and helping them succeed all the way up to the PhD level. And so we're trying to set up, you know, figure out our process of how we learn from them going forward.
0: I love that. I love it a lot. Um, So it was major news uh, recently uh, in the last few months, I think, um, that your member institutions graduated an additional 73,000 graduates um, on top of the 68. Is that did I explain that right? Is it on top of
1: beyond like we exceeded our goal? Yeah,
0: by 73 or by five,
1: by five. Um, But also like five years early.
0: Right. Which is awesome. But both of those things are awesome. Um, so I'm curious, I mean, you, you listed some of the interventions that uh, made some of your member campuses successful. I'm curious about, um, A, this notion of transparency and collaboration between higher ed institutions just feels like so not the norm. <laughs> so like talk to talking about how. Did you have to, like, sell that and say, listen, we're all going to make an agreement to share successes and, and pro- protocols, et cetera? Was that a hard sell to do to to reach these uh, incredible numbers? And uh, what are some of the uh, ancillary benefits of these uh, successes that um, your, your institutions uh, are realizing because of it?
1: Uh, so first, I would say it was their idea. Oh, wow. So that makes it. Um, I mean, all of the alliance, all of this work is, was their idea. It was this was founded by eleven presidents and chancellors. You know, I came in, I was free labor as an ACE fellow, um, following Michael Crow around during this whole year of really iteration of figuring out how we were going to do this work. Um, but this was their idea. This is these campus leaders. This was important to them. M- almost all of the presidents and chancellors in the UIA who founded the UIA are, were former first-generation low-income or students of color. So this is personal to them. Um, but when it comes to this transparency and data sharing piece, I think it was useful that we have a, a broad coalition of funders. And we also had a really fantastic support in the White House. Um, James Qual was at the Domestic Policy Council at the time. And uh, there are a variety of other players involved, but when we were first forming we one of the first meetings we had was with James in the West Wing about this was a it was a, a big idea at the time collaboration was not sexy or cool and student success wasn't even really talked about Everything had been about you know graduation rates and access and this was a different idea that we were bringing um. And so they liked the idea and they were very useful in the pro- along the way in that um, at one point they were coming up with holding a new, another college opportunity summit and a lot of campuses i don't know if you um are familiar but when the white when the obama administration held the first white house college opportunity summit it was a lot of elite elite institutions quote unquote and uh you know the fastest way to tick off a lot of universities is not invite them to a party so i early on i was just like if you're going to do this again you know i can i can't stop hearing about everyone who wasn't invited to this why not use it these powers for good? Um, and and I was certainly not the one who came up with that idea. But um, but what we did brainstorm was if the White House College Opportunity Summit could be a vehicle to galvanize institutions to form things like the Alliance to incentivize collaborative, big, ambitious goal setting. And so because they did that, you know, we just we we announced our you know that we were in existence in September. We'd already signed our data sharing agreement, but it was really critical that I had this outside kind of um, carrot to dangle. Uh, The fact that everyone wanted to go to the College Opportunity Summit, um, and that they were going to require that we actually submit a goal. So there there was some work behind the scenes to make this happen. But because of that, our campuses committed, and it was a lot of, it was like pulling teeth at the time, to getting specific, because that's really hard. And and to getting campuses to commit to a very specific goal in the future, because it's hard for them, like projections and all these other things, and for good reason. Um, So what we did is we shared the data from uh, a couple campuses, including Georgia State, of here's what they were able to do when they actually did all of this work. Here's the gains they were able to achieve, get their IR offices at the other campuses. Okay, well, if, if you had this kind of transformation and you were able to make like these kinds of improvements then what would potentially be possible at your campus. So they came up with this number for each campus that was above their current and stretch capacity. So it was an ambition it was a stretch goal. That was part of the like behind the scenes. And our total number was 68,000 additional graduates that we were going to produce beyond current and stretch capacity and at least half were going to be low income and we we're going to do that by 2025. And that is how we got them. To sign off on everything, and to that's how we got our like to go to the College Opportunity Summit, and then ironically, James and Roberto and Ajita in um, at the in the Department of Ed and in the White House, they kind of didn't believe us when we gave that number because it was a really high number. They thought it might have been like just thrown out there, and so we actually had to like prove that it was physically possible. Um, so that just to share that it sounded really ambitious at the time it was, and yet. Here we are, and in 2020, we have exceeded that goal and um, increased our low-income graduates overall by 36%, and our students, our graduates of color by 73%. Um, and we're going to probably hit 100 and I think 30,000 in the same time frame as we were going to try and hit that first goal. So, oh my gosh. that's
0: this that's is like, like a dream.
1: lot more than you asked for,
0: <laughs> right? No, but it was perfect because I think that. First of all, I think that this is such important work. I firmly believe in what higher ed can do. I tend to be challenged by the way higher ed does it. And so I think that the work that you do with your member organizations about, you know, keeping things student-centered and, you know, cr- creating solutions for the student experience so that every everything that happens on a campus funnels into the priority audience. I think, again, it just it's so easy to get lost in the day-to-day and so, I just, I just think it's important work that you're doing at a very important time, at a, at a time when higher ed is facing a bunch of obstacles from many different fronts, but especially for low income and students of color. And so uh, I'm just super, super grateful for the work that you're doing here um, and who, who you're doing the work on behalf of. I'm curious about, um, based on the last eight or so years, um, what are some things that come to mind um, in the ways that higher ed could evolve itself to be a bit more inclusive to the same audiences that the UIA prioritizes.
1: So in terms of admitting, recruiting, becoming Actually, a any of Mercedes, any of it. Well, um, I mean, there's so much. Like, It's like, how much time do you have um, in terms of there, there's so much work that we have not done to show up and sit with people in their communities and listen to what they need from institutions of higher learning. Um, We have been doing similar things for a very long time. And there is a disconnect at times between people's understanding of what higher education is and what they should expect from it, why they should go. We need to do a lot more work, I think, uh, really connecting and communicating with audiences in a conversational uh, manner that is not just broadcast, not just marketing and not just bragging. I think, you know, you have almost 4,000 colleges and universities who are all talking about how they're the greatest at this, or they're the blankety blank of blank, right? And it just becomes noise. And it's really off putting and hard. And I'm thinking in particular about first generation students, because um, I'm Uh, big with big brothers big sisters and my little when when they were going through their process of figuring out where you know college question mark growing up in a low income first generation family you know my priority was to get them away from their family as far as possible um but in a supportive space right to make sure they would they would be successful um and here i am i have a doctorate in higher education leadership and policy and i had a very difficult time Helping them navigate this space, we don't make it easy for um, a lot of communities to understand, you know, how to be successful, how to make this decision, what is good, how would we know, how do you find the right good for you, um, how do you find the right fit, and and why should you go to college, and how can you assess personally success or failure? I think that we're too defensive about yes, college is the way and we are defensive about any critique and we don't actually listen and understand that what we are taking as a criticism is really a request for us to do a bit more listening and to understand that some of our processes could be improved. So in particular, I think a lot of the, and again, when we're talking about that disconnect and that, um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of the narrative in the public space that says college isn't worth it or that you shouldn't go or blah, blah, like all of that. Yes, I get just as indignant and upset when I hear it. But what I actually hear is a, a, a very justified criticism that our thinking about college to career was ineffective and insufficient for the task. Uh, When we created career services offices, we thought that would be good enough. We thought, okay, you want us to help now? We're not just about the awakening of the soul. We're not just about the preservation of democracy. We're not just about, you know, all of these important things that higher education is about. We're also supposed to make sure you get a job and people are saying, we're not doing a good enough job at that. And we just took that on and said, okay, great. We're gonna just create an office for that. And at no point did we think about how that's not sufficient. <laughs> like right. stopping off to get your resume looked at um, as you head out the door in your, in your last year is, is that is insufficient for the task that most Americans are actually really asking about, which is how do I know that, um, explain to me how a, a conversation in an English English literature class is going to help me be able to feed my family am I making the right choice, right? Like, I think there's a really um, thoughtful dialogue that should be happening that is less defensive, that is less shut down immediately, um, where we can understand where there are small minor changes that need to happen um, mm-hmm. to our institutions to make them you know, a bit friendlier to audiences who I think we should be friendlier to, and to make sure that people understand
0: really the true value
1: of what we're doing.
0: I love that. The soapbox I often climb up on is the one about higher ed vernacular and how it's just by the words that we use in this space can be alienating to some who might not be familiar with words like endowment and Um, faculty tenure and all these things for like a first-gen or a low-income student, whoever they are, even if they are not a first-gen or low-income student, they are just words that don't connect and resonate to people a lot of times. And so are there ways that we can talk about that promise of higher ed and just using different words, different lots of things, actually. I'm curious about um, the conversation, if it even comes up at all among your members, um, about rankings and if the work that they're doing, will they suffer a hit in the rankings based on being more student-centered or do they not care about the rankings as much because of the work that they're doing on their campus to be more student-centered or does it is it a non-starter for all?
1: We already know that when Georgia State doubled their graduation rate that they went down in the rankings, right? We already had that example uh, that uh, I don't know had the impact we were looking for, which was to help people understand that rankings are in themselves, they're noise. And that perhaps we were valuing the wrong things. So um, we already know that that's possible. Um, And what I try and do with my work is, you know, it's about in this public, um, in the public town square of higher ed, do as much as I can to draw attention to the need to shift our values and creating, um, you know, you call it marketing, whatever, but I'm trying to make student success sexy to the point that institutions will value it. Uh, at the same level as athletics, as anything else that they do, right? Because I understand that they you have to know that these people are trying to keep their jobs while they're also driving change, right? it's, It's important. And especially in this moment where you have policy makers, you have uh, elected officials who have very strong perspectives, and uh, they there are certain things that, that people value. And so you have to understand that it's not like I have a president who walks in and is like, it's going to be student success or nothing. I don't care about anything else. I know that I'm going to have to be a part of those other conversations. So I have to just make sure that um, student success is at least acknowledged and elevated um, to some degree of importance that can help me. And then we also try and create somewhat manufacturing our own incentives because rankings have not sufficiently rewarded the work that i think is the work of the day um, and is the work that really the future of america demands which is serving more low-income first generation and students of color and especially rural low-income americans you think about january 6th what does higher education need to do step up for those people And I am one, I I grew up in rural Montana, so I'm I'm keenly sensitive to the responsibility of higher education in this moment. I I think rankings are, yes, our campuses have a very real example of that they could be dinged for doing this work. Um, They think it's important regardless. And a lot of my work is about making sure that there are enough positives associated so that's raising 30 million dollars that the vast majority of which has been transferred to our campuses so they can actually do this work generating uh pr media attention getting them on 60 minutes getting in the documentary unlikely um getting you know as much attention as possible for the good work we're trying to value uh what we think really should be valued and shift the attention of our sector, so that even if rankings don't step up in the way that we hope,
0: um, that campuses will not take their eye off this. Do you think COVID uh, and everything else that happened in the last 16 months is helping that uh, argument kind of dig in a little bit or get its hooks in? Or do you see some sort of shift in the way uh, the campuses that you work with or other campuses that you don't work with yet talk about student success and its importance at all? I think there's definitely been a shift. And I would say,
1: you know, we've been at this eight years. Um, Student success was getting sexy. We were starting to really, really get some headway. We also, one of the messages we carry is that, you know, don't go alone, right? Uh, Eleven heads are better than one. And we've seen a lot more collaboratives form. And this is just about that diffusion problem. We need institutions to work together. It's such a waste of time, energy, and money Um, if they don't. So that's been great. Um, COVID in particular, I think everyone having a classroom in their living room, they became keenly aware of a lot of the challenges uh, in, uh, of, of education in general. Everyone became um, you know, a, an administrator in their living room. And I think whether the, it was higher education or K-12, people started forming very strong opinions about education, valuing it. Elevate, I mean, remember that early COVID conversation where it was like teachers are saints, they're heroes, right? Well, where is that today, right? So, um, I think people need to remember. Okay, um, but I, yeah, I think that, I think that this last year in particular, as we watch students struggle, um, and it's it's impossible to not see the need for an, a real focus on designing their academic experience around their actual needs. Um, and, and watching what happened during COVID. There's just so many examples of it, but yes, I would say is the answer. Yes, for one of these times you're gonna ask her a question and I'm gonna answer it short. It's gonna be real quick. So I would just say my answer is yes.
0: Okay, okay perfect. <laughs> I'm, I just, this is a question that just came to mind because, you were, what, because of what you were just talking about. In our last episode, we were talking to historically black college and university, HBCU marketing professionals. And part of the conversation that we had with those folks was um, about How these like large gifts uh, at HBCUs to like wipe out student debt or like Wilberforce had, they wiped out student debt for their students uh, that had uh, grants from the school, Um, other you know, very wealthy people making these announcements at uh, commencement ceremonies about wiping out debt. Uh, does it equip you or your, or your members with more information to start to sell this in across higher ed? Like why do we need to have celebrities or wealthy people do what they're doing for colleges? Does it, does it help what you're trying to do in your mission to have those big news stories talking about low-income students needing these kinds of like jackpots, essentially? It just makes it feel
1: I don't, interesting. I mean, I want to say yes, because I want more people to give. So I will say unequivocally, yes, more people should give. If you have a a pocketbook, please do. Um, And give to the institutions in need and give to HBCUs and give to public institutions and and focus on the students that we care about. That's fine. But um, I don't know, look at the architecture of those headlines. They're not really actually elevating the stories of the students. They're elevating the heroic behavior of a benefactor, which I think you know. At the end of the day, if if that's what it takes to get resources to leave your pocketbook and go into the right place, then yes, I would say that that could be the answer. Um, But I do think that sometimes it can be problematic. So there's this big discourse right now about student, you know, whether it's student loan forgiveness, like across federally, right. um, I think that too often higher education, the conversations in the public space are, they lack nuance. And so you end up with people having soundbite debates that I don't think really serve us as a sector, as a country. So when we're talking about student debt, we should have a real conversation about student debt, not just a, you're either someone who doesn't care about low income students or you know, or you're a benefactor. It should there's more nuance. Like I, I mean there's there's actual data that you, you when you put money towards something you value it more that you're going to actually apply yourself more. So we so how are we going to make up for that? And if we're absolving past debts, what are we going to do for the students of today? And knowing that that you know really the cost driver is state disinvestment, then let's have a real conversation about what kinds of things we can do to hold policymakers accountable to not just talk a good game about caring about communities, but actually show up for them on the days that it matters. I just think higher ed is a space where a lot of people feel like they are an expert because they went to college and just like having a K-12 experience does not make me a K-12 expert, it sometimes can be very difficult. And I don't think that marketing stories like that, which I would say is a a marketing story, um, Mm -hmm. always add the level of nuance that I think is needed for us to have a really thoughtful dialogue about what I think is really, I mean, for me, higher education is the most important thing because we're talking about the preservation of democracy in a time where it has never been under greater threat. And that is literally the purpose of higher education. And we need, in the marketplace of ideas, we need everyone to be more well-informed and more articulate, whether they're, wh- whatever their perspective is. We need people to respect science. We need, you know, like, so this is a moment when I think higher ed couldn't matter more. We also need social mobility. We need equity. We need all of these things that I see higher ed is the, is the gateway to. So, you know, I take it very seriously and totally love the headlines, but would love a real meaningful discourse
0: conversation. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I think I agree with you 100% on that. And I probably think too critically about higher ed, um, just in terms of like, why do we do it? Because I, I mean, I work in higher ed now. And so like, why can't we do it this way? Like, let's listen to people and talk and whatever else. But understanding that I am one person in a l- very large institution or organization, um, lots of other things have to be taken into consideration. But I think at the end of the day, if we understand who we're here for and let her be about how many things are attached to the brand of an institution it's not just about the number one ranking it's also about how well we serve our students how well we how many people are eating have access to food and um you know are passing test like all the other things that occur in a higher ed brand it's not just with the tweet and it's not just the video that you make and it's not just the view book there are some other sub very substantive things that you have to deliver in order for those messages to even resonate or be relevant um Mm -hmm. and I, i think that's the part that I get challenged by um, because it feels more like a beauty contest at times than it does like a a hard work contest I guess (laughs) Um, so I I really appreciate your comments there and it it was really helpful for me to just get like to refresh my train of thought on that because you're exactly right you're exactly right
1: it is a beauty contest though I mean like I was as you're talking I'm thinking about like this space matters so much and you when you were earlier talking about like how great grateful you are that uia works this work does this work well imagine the strike of lightning that this work exists for someone like me like i grew up in poverty in rural montana and like hire had changed my life and i get to every day actually work on helping institutions to do the work that i actually know inherently is like the most important work that there is um i feel like i would do this work for free don't tell my boss though but you know, I but I also think that um, I use competition at times, right? I frequently have found I found that jealousy is one of the most powerful forces in higher ed. That it, praising an institution in front of another institution about a certain behavior can actually get them to do that. That's what I do, and it's I don't want to give my playbook away, but that's it. And um, you know. And so I, I'm not any better than any of the rest of the um, incentives out there and the the trappings, the rankings, because it's all a part of that. Right. And I do think that that excessive focus on competition is problematic because what we need is someone to lift our chin up and recognize that there is actually a point. There's a moment for us to have like sector wide. Um, I don't want to say American exceptionalism, but like. This we need to tap into our competitive juices. That the future of our country is at stake, and if in order to get there we have to think about things in a competitive perspective, other countries are going to eat our lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, we are leaving behind the communities that we really need to serve, and we need to, we really need to change our practices and stop being so obsessed with the beauty contest and instead think about the communities that we are leaving behind and the, the economic devastation that this is going to and, and, and all the other things that we should be working right like sustainability like we need to actually like there's a lot of noise but it's actually um, higher ed from my perspective has all the smart people and we have problems that are worthy of all the smart people working together And I would really love for all the researchers, all the faculty, all, you know, so it's a very simplistic analysis. But I do think that um, some of this inside, like, game competition, beauty contest stuff uh, prevents us from actually ever recognizing that, like, we have a huge problem that we need to work on. And
0: the only way we're going to get there is together. Agreed. Okay. So um, what does the future of UIA look like? And uh, how can folks get involved who are listening to this?
1: Well, if you have a huge pocketbook, I will accept checks, <laughs> visa. I, I don't take American Express. Um, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, yes, yeah, so I if you're a funder, yes, we raise resources to try and add, Right now, we're in the, an expansion space where we, you know, it took us eight years to finally add new campuses. That's been huge a huge part of this work. We wanted to find who the right campuses were, figure out how we could make that decision. And then for the last few months, I've been figuring out how do you bring on a campus as an equal partner uh, when other the others have been hanging out together for almost eight years. And so what the UIA is going to do is we will expand up to 20 campuses total. We will never get bigger than that. We know the intimacy of the network, the trust, that vulnerability, that, you know, confidence in each other. There needs to be there I think it, I think there is a limit um, and so we hope to help other networks form uh, we think that state systems perhaps the future of state systems might be doing work like this and we would be well positioned to guide and coach them to do the work in the right way um, but my job is to help these campuses actually eliminate their equity gaps to actually eliminate disparity and to do it working together and so we're going to continue advancing this work to the point that we have multiple campuses who have eliminated their achievement gaps and that in the process we have made it, frankly, um, difficult for you to work in higher education and not know their story. And, you know, I've been talking about Georgia State and ASU and UC Riverside and University of Central Florida and all of our other campuses and their exceptional work. Um, I'm noisy as can be because I want other institutions to know that innovating is possible. In fact, it's a lot easier than people think, um, and that this is the work that you should be doing. It's the worthy work that is most essential. And um, no, we we don't need to say things like they have different students than us. So therefore, that and, and that wouldn't work here. That if those two things died, if the phrases they have different students than us or that won't work here, if those if, if I accomplished nothing else in my career, those would be a worthy accomplishment. Um, I want to make it so that people that our entire sector, ideas spread faster, the right that we serve all students regardless of their identity, and people leave with a meaningful degree that helps them support their families, and um, that higher education is actually designed around the needs of students. So that's the future is we're going to get bigger, we have uh, also created something called the University Innovation Network, which will make it so that if you're not a member, you can still have a lighter touch experience with us. We have developed something called the University Innovation Lab, which is an online um, ecosystem in which you can kind of peruse and share templates, materials, etc. So you can actually borrow ideas quickly. and. Um, yeah, our goal is to make this work as available as possible. So we've just released our first playbook. We'll be releasing another one shortly, and you know that's just that's just 2021.
0: So you know we'll see. I also can't help. I'm just going to slide this in. I also can't help but think about um, member institutions and their participation in the University Innovation Alliance to be better equipped and more well prepared for the inevitable demographic shifts that are going to be coming into college campuses, you'll be more equipped to talk to these kids, these people who are coming in, not all kids, of course, to talk to them because you have a playbook, you have a plan, you understand what the needs are a little bit better than maybe than other institutions who might not be getting this kind of experience. Is that a fair assessment to make?
1: I mean, I would hope so. I don't think that we have it, you know, everything so figured out, Um, but yes, I mean, I think for my institutions, what I hope is that my presidents feel a sense of confidence and peace that they know that their campus is doing the actual right work and not just the work that they are being sold. A lot of the time, people who are you know, mid to high level administrators are, you know, we should do X or Y. Great. What we're doing is the best, you know, because, you know, you want your boss to think you're doing a good job. It's actually really hard for presidents to know if they're doing the right stuff they don't have very much attention that they can give to this. So they need to have a lot of confidence that their campus is doing the right work, that their professionals are getting the right professional development, that they're part of the right kind of network or whatever that ensures that they are on the cutting edge. And so my campus leaders definitely know that. They know that um, that I will give them an honest assessment of what's really going on. And also position that when they do the right stuff that they get credit for that. And that they are also moving on a path to you know, holding each other accountable to actually doing, uh, achieving a very big goal that for each of them
0: is very personal. Excellent. Before I ask you where people can catch up with you on social, is there anything else that I did not ask about that you'd like to mention or reference or talk about?
1: Um, Well, I would just say that if folks want to uh, connect with us, we did as one of our, in the pandemic, so pre-pandemic, I started live streaming weekly three years ago uh, because we knew that the way that ideas were spreading was too slow and we, I needed to develop that skill to feel comfortable um, doing something that felt very unacademic. And uh, now, thankfully we had that capacity and had actually launched shows. So we do live stream shows every week on Inside Higher Ed and on our own YouTube channel as well, on a variety of platforms. So on our Twitter, bburnsedu, our UIA Innovation is our Twitter, and you can watch our shows. We have a new president or chancellor every Monday call, on a show called Weekly Wisdom about leadership. We also have shows every month called About Scholarship to Practice, which is elevating scholars who are doing exemplary work on student success and, and are have figured something out that the rest of the sector needs to know. And actually having a conversation about debunking it and like bridging that gap, making it easy for an administrator to implement. So those are two things that are really intended to help the field. And then if otherwise, you know, I hang out on Twitter, probably more than more than other social media platforms. And uh, we hope to someday be back in person and have another UIA national summit, which is uh, imagine if a conference was actually awesome. and. Designed with pedagogy, and and actually designed to have you achieve an objective before you leave. Like you actually will, you know, develop work, develop a strategy, a plan, develop skills, and leave with new like a new consortium or a new alliance, uh, new new allies to work with. So,
0: all that at a conference. That sounds great, actually. That's. Uh, useful information to have and I have to say that your conversations that you have on social are Incredible there's great guests. It's great questions. It's great conversation and they aren't long It's not like a whole, you know afternoon or anything. It's a very uh, digestible amount of content. I really really appreciate you doing that work
1: Thank you And just to, the secret behind that is those were created because I needed to find a way to interview presidents We were considering for our expansion list without signaling that they were being vetted because I'm a hashtag innovator.
0: Oh, Richard got secrets. She's letting you in all the secrets here. Oh, my yeah. word. I have to thank you very much for your time today. I know you're super busy. Um, again, I'm a huge fan of you and the work that you do. I'm so glad that we've been able to keep in touch. Uh, I appreciate the time you've given me today for this conversation, and I hope uh, we can work together again soon in the future.
1: It's an honor, and thanks so much for having me.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. You can find us on Twitter at Vault Higher Ed, and follow me on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler2. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time.